Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Taryn. Um, just to say what a, a profound morning it's already been, and uh, I'm just humbled by the opportunity and responsibility to, to preach, so thanks to Ty and to, and to Jody for the opportunity. Um, something that I, I want to say, in case I forget to say it later, but it's essentially what I want to speak on today, that it is impossible to take hold of the promises of God alone. And there were multiple times where my faith had literally gone, and a, a conversation with Tyron um, and, and him just saying simply, what did the Lord say? I, I mean, I think we overcomplicate it sometimes. And, and that's the question that we need to remind ourselves so often. What did the Lord say? So I'm going to teach for 35 minutes. If, there's, if you forget everything, but remember one thing, let it be, what did the Lord say? What has the Lord said to you? Even if it doesn't make sense, go after that. Um, in 2 Peter, Peter writes this uh, in chapter 1. He says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. And I read that verse just to say that quite a lot of what I want to say this morning um, is, is a repeat in some ways of what Tyron taught on last night and also a number of things that came up this morning prophetically. And I read that verse not as an apology. I say that not as an apology, but just to give some context. And it's important for us to understand that if God is saying something over and over again, we need to have our ears and our hearts pricked to what the Lord is saying so that we don't miss out on not on some things that he wants to do in us, but on everything that he wants us to take hold of. I'm not sure how many uh, fans of The Lord of the Rings there are in this room. Um, I guess a few, perhaps not too many, but uh, even if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, I I'm, I'm pretty sure that you will know that The Lord of the Rings is a fairly complex story. Um, we might read The Lord of the Rings and think, and think it tells the story of a hairy-toed hobbit by the name of uh, Frodo Baggins. But it actually tells a whole bunch more. It tells the story of the survival of hobbits and elves and dwarves and the men of Gondor and Rohan. And it even goes further than that. It, it tells the story of good and evil and the, the conquest of kind of the, the, the survival of, of civilization. It's in so many ways, it's actually, it's a story within a story within another story. And Tyron's taught this before, but when it comes to reading the scriptures and understanding how the scriptures apply to us, it's no different to that. So often the scriptures apply to us on an individual level. And we consider how is God speaking to us as his children. And, and there is a context for that. God speaks to us as his children in the context of us being part of a local church. And so when God's word comes at us or comes to us as his children, it is also coming to us in the context of the local church that we are a part of. And then being part of a local church has a context too. It has the context of local churches relating to a translocal apostolic team that are working together to advance the kingdom of God. But even the translocal team has a context. The translocal team are working with other translocal teams around the world to advance the kingdom of God. 
God speaks to us at every single one of these levels. And unfortunately, we don't get to choose which one we prefer. We need to hear the Lord in every single one of these contexts. And so what I want to share today, what I hope that will still be shared today, what was shared last night, don't just hear it for you, for me as a child of God, but hear it in the context of what does that mean as a member of my local church? And what does that mean for my local church being part of a translocal team? And what does that translocal ministry, uh, uh, like how does that work out as we partner with other translocal ministries to advance the kingdom of God? And as I said, what I want to speak on today, I think this applies. And I want you to hang on to this illustration as we go through what I want to share on. What I want to teach on today is how do we take hold of God's promises together? How do we take hold of God's promises together? At Anthem Church, we've just finished probably what I would say is, for me, probably one of the most significant series we've ever done. Not because the teaching was great or not because, or any other reason other than it was, it was a significant series for the season that we were in as a church. And so again, I make no apologies by bringing a message that comes out of that series. A series which I do believe has impact for every single one of us. And it's a series we entitled New Ground. How do we take hold of the new ground that God has, has given us? I love David Schiller's um, uh, word to us this morning. The, that we need to be those that take hold of that which God has already given us. God's promises are guaranteed, but they're not automatic. They require us to, to press in. They require us to go after. They require faith for us to take hold of that which God has already given. As one studies the book of Joshua, that's the, that's the book, the, the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, were the two books that we were studying in the series. As you begin to read the book of Joshua, and it starts in Joshua chapter 1, this, this, this pattern begins to emerge of, of God speaking and making known His promises and His purpose, and then God stirring faith in the heart of Joshua and later some of the judges in the book of Judges, God's stirring faith in their hearts to, to take hold of his promises and his purpose. And then God surrounding them with people so that together they can t take hold of God's promises. Think of Joshua chapter one, a, a chapter I'm assuming most of us know really well. God starts out by speaking to Joshua Moses, my servant, is dead. I mean, that's true of us. That's true of this season that we're in, friends. We can learn from the past, but we must be so careful not to long for the past. There is, as Tyrant so often says, there's no future in what God has already done. We can learn from it. We can grow from it. We can understand things from it, but we can't long for the way things were. Moses, my servant, is dead. And then he goes on to say, now then, get ready. God was speaking to Joshua. And then God began to stir faith in Joshua. He began to say to him three times, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous because I'm with you. Be strong and courageous as you read my word. I loved how that came through yesterday. Be strong and courageous as you read my word. Today, that prophetic word, be strong and courageous because I'm always with you. God speaks. God stirs faith. 
And then God begins to surround Joshua with the people of God. Joshua, go through the tribes of Israel and begin to get them ready because we're beginning to cross over the Jordan. It was true of Joshua. It was true of Gideon. If you carry on reading First and Second Samuel, it's true of David. And even into the New Testament, this is not just an Old Testament pattern. This is, a, this is something that is true throughout Scripture. Think of Peter on his boat. And the Lord says to Peter, Peter, I know that you haven't fished, you haven't had any success with fishing, but why don't you cast your nets on the right side of the boat? God speaks. And then Peter says, Lord, because you said so, God stirs faith. And the response was, so much fish that they had to call other boats to help. God surrounds with people. And friends, I, I really believe, I, I believe so strongly about this, that, that this is something of the pattern that God is beginning to stir in his people again. We need to be aware of this pattern. We need to have, this is a season for us to have the ears, our ears and our hearts pricked to the voice of the Lord. This is a season for, for the Lord to begin to stir our hearts with faith for impossible things. Mary, in, in, in John chapter 2, says to the servants when, when they had run out of wine, she says, to, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. To which I always add, even if it doesn't make sense. Friends, we need to be those people who do exactly as the Lord tells exactly as the Lord tells us. Josh read out of um, Joshua chapter five that, that, that the clarity of the call and, and the means by which the people of Israel were to take the city Jericho. And if you carry on reading into Jericho chapter uh, Jericho chapter six, Joshua chapter six, it says this: the city of Jericho was tightly shut up. It was impossible to get into the city of Jericho. And the Lord says this to Joshua, see, I have given you the city into your hands. Impossible. But we need to do what he tells us to do, even if it doesn't make sense. The thing that I think we need to be aware of as you read the book of Joshua, though, is we get to Joshua chapter 7. And it's a passage of scripture which there's the temptation to skip it over. Joshua 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, 6, the people of God are advancing. The people of God are on the move. God is taking them forward. And then all of a sudden we read Joshua chapter 7. And there's a warning in there for us that we can't avoid. It's the same in, in some ways as Acts chapter 5. Think of how the book of Acts begins to move as God begins to stir, his, his stir and, 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 and stir the hearts of his people. Churches, uh, the, the church in Jerusalem is, 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 is blowing up. The people of God are advancing and then Acts chapter 5 happens. And Ananias and Sapphira begin to lie to the Holy Spirit. And I want to just take a moment to share a couple of things out of Joshua chapter 7 before we move on. And this is, not, this is not by any means a, a, a harsh message, but it's a reminder to us of the people that God is calling us to be in this season. It's a reminder of our identity, because that was the issue with Achan. Achan forgot that he was a part of the people of God. 
Achan lost sight of the identity that he was called to be part of the people of God. Listen to Joshua chapter 7 verse 21. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from, from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. And they are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Notice I said what happened to Achan was he lost sight of the fact that he was part of the people of God. He wasn't this individual all on his own trying to take hold of the promises of God. That's not how God has called us to take hold of his promises. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. Friends, that's not how God has called us to take hold of his promises. John the Baptist makes it so clear. We, we cannot take anything that God has not given us. Um, he, he says a person can only receive what is given to him from heaven. God has not called us to, 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 to take something that's not ours. People, perhaps. Maybe even Things that we, we want because it's going to give greater profile to our calling or our ministries. God doesn't want us to take hold of something that's not ours to take hold of. And then only have to hide it because we don't want others to see. God's called us to take hold of his promises together. Listen to what the Lord says in, in, in Joshua chapter 7 verse 11. He says this, Israel, not Achan, he says Israel has sinned because they have violated my covenant they have taken things that is not theirs to take they have lied somehow Achan got isolated somehow Achan forgot that he was part of the people of God and, and, and I would suggest that perhaps second only to did the Lord really say or did God really say this, this strategy of the devil to isolate the people of God from those around them is such an effective strategy, friends. And for some reason, we fall for it every time. This is not the season for us to be isolated. This is not the season for as an individual or for your family to be isolated. This is not the season for you to isolate your church from those around you. This is not the season for that. 1 Samuel chapter 17, you know, is the story of, of David and Goliath. And I think there's some wonderful lessons that we can learn about the strategy of the devil through how Goliath attacked the Israelites. And there's one verse which says this. It says, this, this is Goliath speaking to the Israelites. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Speaking about the community of God's people. And then he says this, this choose a man. Find an individual and have him come down to me. You see, Goliath knew, the devil knows that as soon as you isolate somebody out of the people of God, suddenly they are vulnerable and we fall for it every time. For those who have kids, think of when your kid was, was, was small and young and when they're playing in the yard and they trip and they hurt themselves, what is the first thing they do? They stand up and they look for their mom and dad and run straight back to family. But for some reason, as followers of Jesus, when we stumble and fall, we play this silly game where we isolate ourselves and think, well, let's see how much I'm really loved. Let's see how much I'm really missed. Friends, you are playing into the strategy of the, of the enemy. This is not a time for us to isolate ourselves. 
How does that impact you individually? How does that impact you as a local church? This is not a time for us to be isolating ourselves. We need to be taking hold of God's promises together. The second thing I think that Achan lost sight of was that he lost sight of the fact that his identity was rooted in the the fact that he was part of this kingdom of light, not a kingdom of darkness. That's what the people of God, that's what the Israelites were called to do. They were, they were ushering in the, the kingdom of light. They were ushering in this kingdom of God into, uh, uh, into, into Canaan. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 says this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore live as children of light. Friends, We are not called to usher in light as something that we do. We usher in light because of someone that we are. This verse in Ephesians chapter 5 doesn't say you are living in the light of the Lord. And it doesn't say you are becoming light in the Lord. It says you are light in the Lord. So therefore live as children of light. In other words, live as who you already are in Jesus. 26 years ago, it was pronounced over me. It was declared over me that I was a husband. And and I'm taking and I have taken and I will continue to take steps to become who I already was declared to be. And in time, I'm becoming more of who I was declared to be. Five or six years ago, we became American citizens. And it was pronounced and declared over us that we are American citizens. Friends, I didn't leave right away speaking with an American accent. But over time, I'm becoming the American that I was declared to be at that ceremony. Over time, I'm not calling traffic lights robots. And over time, I'm not calling, uh, I'm not calling dummies, I'm not calling pacifiers dummies. Or, or strange things like that. Strollers, prams, sidewalks. What's the South African? Pavements, exactly. I'm becoming the American that I was declared to be. What's that? <laughs> Hamburger. And friends, that's the reality of who we are in Christ. Becoming more like Jesus, which is the, the fancy word for that is sanctification, is not... A list of don't do this, and don't do that, and don't do this, and don't do that. But it's realizing who you are in Jesus. It's realizing how Jesus, how God sees you. Ephesians chapter 1, you are seen by the Father as holy and blameless in His sight. And and, and it's, it's about understanding what has happened to me in Jesus. I have been united with Christ in His death. In his burial, in his resurrection, and now I am seated at the Father's right hand in Jesus. When Paul says in Romans chapter in Romans six that we have been united with Christ, he's not saying we've we've come alongside and we're holding hands, as if like that can easily be separated. He's saying you have been inseparably fused to Jesus. 
When my, if I'm driving in Chicago and I get a flat tire, what I can do is I can take off that tire, that wheel, and take it to the shop and get it fixed. That's not what Paul means when he's talking about being united with Christ. When I break a finger, I don't unscrew my finger and take it to the doctor. The, the entirety of who I am have to go, has to go to the doctor. That's what Paul means. United with Christ and seated at the right hand of the Father. Friends, we need to understand this. We need to understand where we are seated in the light of who we are in Jesus. I remember once I was traveling on a business trip many years before we planted a church, and I had traveled quite a bit with British Airways, and I was one of their uh, gold or platinum members, and I remember I was on a business trip from Mexico City back to Johannesburg, and I walked up to the counter, and the person behind the counter said, Mr. Sudworth, uh, great to have you with us. You'll be glad to know that we have seated you in first class. Now, it was, it was incredible, let me tell you. There were eight of us on this entire plane. It was an incredible experience. She said to me, I was standing in front of her. She said to me, you will be glad to know we have seated you in first class. I didn't say to her, no, 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 no. I haven't been seated in first class. I'm standing right in front of you. No, the reality of the certainty of what was going to happen impacted the way I would spend the next hour and a half before I climbed on the airplane. All of a sudden, my shoulders were back, my head was high, my first class ticket was kind of outside of my breast pocket. I was using crazy pretentious language like a first class passenger should. The certainty of where I was seated changed the way that I lived. Friends, you and I have been, not are being, have been seated at the Father's right hand. And it should change the way we live here on earth. We are not people of darkness. We are, we are people, people of light. I told this to our church uh, on Halloween Sunday. It was the Sunday of Halloween. Let me put it that way. On the Sunday of Halloween, I told him that $7 billion is spent every year in America on dressing up as people who are dead. But as Christians, we do it almost every day. Dressing up as the people that we once were. When Paul tells us, the scriptures tell us, throw off your old self. And every day, clothe yourself in the reality of who you are in Jesus. There's a fight on our hands, friends. I loved what Terry shared a, a few moments earlier about the season is now. It's go time. There's a fight for the things that God has already given us. But I want to just take the last few moments just to talk a little out of Ephesians chapter 4. And if you've got a Bible, maybe you can turn there. Because there's another kind of fight. Tyron mentioned five or six things last night that we need to fight for. And I just felt to hone in on one of those things. And that is the fight for unity. The fight for unity. Since we're talking about taking hold of God's promises together, I want to just share real quickly as we bring this into land. The need for us to fight for unity. It's a passage of scripture we know well, but hopefully this will be a reminder of things that we already know. Ephesians chapter 1, sorry, 4, reading from verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you 
to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Can I just stop there and say, don't be tempted to read that individually. Paul is not referring to the calling you have received as an individual to be a father or a life group leader or a church leader. If you understand the context of Ephesians, what Paul is saying is to live a life worthy of the calling you have received to be part of the people of God. The planet are looking at the church and what it looks like to be part of the people of God. And that's what Paul is referring to. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And for the sake of time, let's jump down to verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. I'm going to read verse 14 again because that just to me describes the season that the church is, is in right now. We, we are being tempted to be, to be buffeted here, there, and everywhere. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and, and by the cunning and craftiness of people, people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Unity, I, I sometimes liken to a bar of soap. When we take a bath, we know that we need to grab hold of the bar of soap, but it just keeps slipping out of our hands. And I, I, I honestly can't think of any more important way for us to live as the church of Jesus Christ in this season. We know that the power, the kingdom power that is released when we live counterculturally to the world, when we live according to the kingdom of God. And friends, surely this is a time. If we are to live in any way, surely this is a time for us to live in unity under Jesus Christ. That's what the people of God need to see. And so I want to just share quickly four ways for us to find unity from this text. It's right there. Paul makes it very clear. Stuff that you know, but I think just as a good reminder as we bring this into land. Firstly, humility. Four ways to find unity. Firstly, humility. Paul honestly couldn't be clearer. Look at verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Oh, they let me down again. Love is patient. Oh, they spoke badly about me again. Love is patient. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Friends, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit is not, I know they're upset with me. They've got that my number if they want to get hold of me. That's not making every effort. 
How does that apply to you as an individual? Or your churches? How does that apply to the things that you give leadership to? Make every effort. Humility, Tyron said this before, humility, not pride, is the characteristic of being in the presence of the Lord. If we find ourselves in God's presence, if we are, quote unquote, a people of God's presence, a phrase that we love to throw around, let me tell you, if we are that people, then we should not be a people who are proud, but a people who are humble. Again, the greatest example is Jesus. Paul writes about that in, in, in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be taken hold of, something that was his to grab. But instead, he, he laid it down and became obedient even unto death. That's why, in some degree, that's why we are called to, to be baptized in water, to, to outplay the reality of us humbling ourselves even unto death so that God can resurrect us in Jesus. We are called to be a humble people. D.L. Moody says this, I firmly believe that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition and self-seeking and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Ghost will come in and will fill every corner of our hearts. But if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition and self-seeking and the pleasure and the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. And I believe many a person is praying to God to fill them when they are already filled with something else. Before we pray that God would fill us, I believe we ought to pray Him to empty us. There must be an emptying before there can be a filling. The second way to find unity is through centrality. Look at verse 4 and 5. In other words, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. We need to focus on the majors. We need to emphasize the important things, not get caught up in the peripheral things. And this is a season, for some reason, where the church of Jesus Christ is getting caught up in the peripheral things. And we know who is the main thing, and that is Jesus. But that's why Paul says, friends, we, we are part of, one part of one body. We are filled with one spirit. We have one hope. We serve one Lord. We have one faith and one baptism. We worship one God. Those are the things that unite us. Those are the things that need to be central, not the peripheral sideline things. How do we take hold of unity? Humility, centrality. Thirdly, diversity. Diversity. In verse 7, we are told that, that Jesus has given us an, an entire, an, a range of gifts, a range of graces. Each of us have, have different varying gifts or graces. And, and in order to, to, to help to, to shepherd and to harness and to, and to lead and to bring into maturity, God gives leaders, God gives Ephesians 4 ministry gifts, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Why? To equip those people with varying gifts, to equip them to do the work of the ministry. And as they do the work of the ministry, we discover unity. Friends, diversity of purpose can only, uh, sorry, unity of purpose can only be achieved when there's diversity of role. Think of the time that you were a parent, for those who are parents, and you've gone when your kid was five or six, and you've gone to their basketball game or gone to their soccer game. And all you see is in a soccer game, you see 
20 kids, because the goalkeepers at least are where they should be, but 20 other kids literally running around after one soccer ball. And the parents are shouting, no, go there. You need to take your place over there. And so what the coach does during the week is he understands that unity of purpose to win the game requires diversity of gifting. We need defenders. We need midfielders. We need attackers, each doing their various parts. And that's, what, that's why leaders have been given to local churches to help, local ch- to, to, to help folks within local churches discover their gift and begin to function in it, and why God has given Ephesians 4 ministries to help various churches discover the unique gifting that they have so that together we can advance the kingdom of God. There has to be diversity and a recognition of diversity in order for us to become mature, the people that God has called us to be. Humility, centrality, diversity, maturity. We mature into whom? Into Jesus. We mature into Jesus. Not tossed by this and that teaching. Oh, this looks like it's where God is right now. And then three weeks later, no, no, it's this that seems to be what, what what God is doing. And all that we do is we look behind us and there's a trail of people left confused and unclear as to what God is calling us to do. Maturity finds a stability and a clarity that comes from reading his word, that comes from following Jesus, that comes from obeying what he's asked us to do, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it's not the latest, the quote-unquote, latest and greatest teaching that is going through the church right now. Friends, there is something about us finding that ancient path and standing in it, and then beginning to follow what the Lord has called us to do. Humility, centrality, diversity, maturity. The difference between unity in the church and unity in the world is this. Most important difference. Unity in the world, the person who is wanting you to be in unity with them, is asking you to embrace, become more and more like them. In the church, together, we are becoming more like Jesus. It's an opportunity for us, every single one of us, to lay down our convictions, to lay down our preferences, so that together we can become more like Jesus. Jesus is the example of humility. He's the reason for our centrality. He's the creator of diversity, and he's the grounds for our maturity.